is Honest Math Chat, and I am Mona Eel, and I'm so happy to have you here for our part two interview with Peter Liliadal, the author of Building Thinking Classrooms. If you missed part one of our interview, go listen to episode 93, where Peter and I break down the two ways to consolidate. Now, in this episode, Peter and I dig into the concepts that will likely come up in your consolidating. Things like how students represent their thinking on the whiteboards, how representations can move our students from a simple understanding to a more sophisticated understanding, and how having multiple ways to think about and represent a math concept is what Peter calls thick understanding. We will also talk about how to build a thinking classroom when you have a pacing guide and standards that you must teach. We'll talk about productive struggle and how you can foster that in your classrooms. When I say that this episode is jam-packed with goodness, I mean it. Here is part two of my interview with Peter Liliadal. This is Honest Math Chat, and I'm Mona Eel of Mona Math. I'm a former math avoider turned math teacher cheerleader, and I'm going to get real honest with you about math classroom culture, engagement, math discussions, and all the student-centered instructional practices to help you empower your students to love and understand math deeply. So every Monday on Honest Math Chat, we're going to work together to make our classrooms places where students see themselves as mathematicians. But let's not wait. If you're ready to engage every learner and get them pumped about math, you've got to use math discussions. I welcome you to download the guide to engaging math discussions right now. Go to monamath.com slash discussions. You'll get all my best tips on how to guide on the side while getting every child meaningfully engaged in discussing their math thinking. Okay, you said two things that I want to go back to. The first one was about these thin slice problems. Is that right? So you said a lot of the times the kids are using the same strategy, but their representation often is happening verbally or in discourse. Yeah. I just talked to your friend, Kim. And so we talked all about the five representations. And so inevitably, you're going to have students at their boards who aren't ready to discourse it out, which is my favorite. That's why I got a podcast. I love to talk it out. <laughs> but other kids are going to want to be drawing it out or, you know, using manipulatives or doing some other thing to represent their thinking. Thoughts on that? Of course. So, well, first of all, they're, they are talking it out, but they're also representing it. And they're usually representing it symbolically. Like mm-hmm. I anticipate these grade eights. Yes. They're going to talk it out verbally. They're going to represent it symbolically. And it depends. Are they going to actually draw the balance scale? Are they going to draw the algebra tiles? Are they going to draw the, you know, the chicken and the <laughs> and the eggs? Right. Are they going to draw these different things? It depends on what other prior experiences that they have. Mm-hmm. So what we have to understand about multiple representations is there are two schools of thought. One school of thought is that we want multiple representations because that thickens their understanding. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's like, I'm thinking about that locker problem. You know, the locker problem, the problem yep. where all the lockers are closed and the first kid into the school opens all the lockers. Mm-hmm. And then the second kid in closes every second locker. And then the third kid in 
changes the state of every third locker. If it's closed, they open. If they, or if it's open, they close it. The fourth one changes the state of every fourth. 150 kids come in the school. At the end of that, which lockers are open and which ones are closed, right? Like I'm thinking about that problem. And it it's just such an interesting context for thinking about perfect squares. Mm-hmm. But now if I think about perfect squares, I also think about the square representation, the idea of that I can represent nine with th- nine circles in a square configuration. Mm-hmm. But I can think of a perfect square also as a number of times itself, right? And I can also think about a perfect square as x squared. I can think about how perfect squares are distributed on the number line, the way they they skip and they get further and further apart. I can think about the sequence of perfect squares as being plus three, plus five, plus seven, plus nine. I can think about these different representations. And all of those representations of square numbers creates a thick understanding. So when I encounter a square number in the future, I'm going to access a different representation depending on what the task is asking. Maybe I'm going to tap into this idea that the difference between consecutive square numbers is always an odd number. Maybe I'm going to tap into the idea that a square number is always a sum of consecutive triangular numbers. Maybe I'll tap into the idea of a square as that representation of the nine dots or the dots in a square. Or maybe I'm just going to think about it as a number times itself or x squared, depending on what the task is asking, right? So having a thick understanding of of a task gives me multiple representations, multiple ways of thinking about the task that then gives me more receptors when a task is posed, right? As opposed to just having a thin understanding, a a thin way of thinking about the task. I'll give you an example. I was doing a lesson today. We were doing tax collector, which is a a really popular task. It's in my book. It's in chapter six of my book. And we were doing this with a seven, eight split class. And one of the things that happens is you, you're you picking which envelopes you want, and then the tax collector is taking other ones. And then at the end, you got to figure out how much you got. So you got to add this up. And what was interesting was every single group in the room was adding left to right. And what they were doing is they were pairing up numbers. They take the first pair and add them, take the second, the next two pair and add them, take the next pair and add them, take the next pair. Then they would go down to the next row and then pair the first two and pair the third and Hmm. fourth and so on. And they kept doing this until they had one number. Every group was doing this. And what they were ignoring were things like nine plus 11 is 20 because they were just taking the first two numbers. And so there is an example of they have a thin understanding of addition and not a thick understanding where we want to look for complementary pairs. We want Mm -hmm. these friendly pairs that help us index really well. So there's an example of this. So when we have multiple representations, we have a thick understanding. So the other understanding is that we want to think about multiple representations as helping us mediate from A to B. A manipulative helps us get from A to B. And then a, a drawn representation of that manipulative helps us get from B to C. And then a symbolic representation gets us from C to D. And then that helps us get to uh, abstract understanding, right? That we're using different representations as mediators to get from A to B. And, and in some situations, you can see that what we're really shooting for here is multiple representations for thick understanding. And what we're uh, in other situations, what we're doing is we're trying to get the students to get from A to B to C to D. So, for example, mm. we want students to use an, a ruler to do subtraction when they're very young, but eventually we want to move away from that. It's not mm. that like when they're in grade nine, I don't want to see a drawing of a ruler to show subtraction. <laughs> right, right, right. I don't want multiple representations at this point. At this point, I just want you to have moved to mm-hmm. sort of 
the abstract symbolic. So sometimes we want a mediator, sometimes we want thick understanding. So one of the best ways to create, regardless of what it is we're doing, one of the best ways to ensure that students are either moving along on this journey from concrete to abstract or creating a thick understanding is to help them always represent in at least two modalities. Yes. Right. So I want them drawing and writing. I want them talking and writing. I want them manipulating and writing. I want them manipulating and talking. Yes. I think that's a really good reminder of don't just have them draw the model, but have them describe the model or talk about the context and represent it with manipulatives. Absolutely. So I love the idea of thick understanding because when you have a thick understanding, you can be more flexible. You can be more strategic in what you choose to do, which makes you more efficient or effective, right? So all of those things that I feel like as teachers, we're like, well, we want them to be efficient and we want them to be flexible. Well, then they have to develop that thick understanding where they can come at the problem a lot of ways. Yeah. When I'm talking about thick understanding, like this comes from sociology. This is geared. It's I, I don't talk about this in my book. This is this is from a, my academic hat. Like, <laughs> I'm talking to you from here, but it's, yeah. Okay. You bring your whole self, even your book and all of your experiences to what you do. And so that's, that's great. Okay. So the other thing that I want to talk about, you briefly mentioned it was like, sometimes we get to those conjectures and ideas and all that. And sometimes we don't, and nobody seemingly learns anything that day. And I have been on this like student centered discourse heavy learning journey for a long, long time. And I would say that is my biggest mindset shift that I personally have made is that you can't actually force people to learn things in your time frame. And so no. some days it does kind of fizzle out and you go, well, we'll try again tomorrow, y'all. Like yeah. what advice do you have for people on that topic? So again, I like, I love the way you said this, right? Like we can't force them. We cannot force them to learn, mm-hmm. right? We can bring a student to the water, but we can't make them think. Yes. Like whether or not they're making connections at a neurological, psychological level, is not up to us to decide. All we can really do is till the soil and mm-hmm. hope that something grows. It's, you know, I'm mixing my metaphors like crazy here. But... <laughs> I'm with it. I'm here for it. So we have to be nimble. And what that means is that if the students are not making these connections, we have to ask ourselves, okay, so what can I do about it? I can go out and I can give a hint to help them make the connection. I can plant a seed that'll grow that I can then draw on when I do the consolidation. I can do all of these things. I can I can send a group to look at another group's work. I can step in and show a representation that might help them bring it all together. But I can't actually force them to make these connections. I have to be patient. I have to give what I can. And then I have to evaluate, where are we today? So one of the things that's really, really important about a consolidation is that it's a reflection of what happened in the room today. Consolidation, whether we're doing a gallery walk or that sort of teacher-scribed thing, we're always moving from the bottom up. Let's start with something that everyone can do. We're going to start with that first task. We're going to look at this board. We're going to do something that we're going to start at the most foundational, easiest, common, concrete way of thinking about this task. And then we're going to work our way up. And in doing that, we're kind of moving through every student's zone of proximal development, and we're able to lift everyone a little bit. At the end of a consolidation, every student should be further ahead than than they were at the beginning. But they shouldn't all be up at the ceiling. That's just too big a lift. Right. Right. So I have to be responsive to what what we got in the room that day. Mm-hmm. And then we have to work with that. So you may have had all, best laid plans. That's what we call a threshold. A threshold is what your plans are. Mm-hmm. And then we have to be willing to 
raise or lower that threshold. So the threshold is the point I want every group to get through. Well, okay, we're not getting there today. So I'm going to lower my threshold. And then the consolidation is around the new threshold. But I also have to be willing to level up because it happens multiple times where we go into a lesson going, okay, this is, yeah. And then all of a sudden, 20 minutes in, we're making tasks on the fly because the kids are all tearing (laughs) through this stuff. So we just have to be really nimble in this regard. Having said that, it's harder to do than you think mm-hmm. because you're looking at a learning outcome or a standard that we got to get through today. We we have a learning intention. We got to hit that target because we got other places to go. But then you got to ask yourself, right? Like we have a choice here. We can achieve some learning or we can achieve no learning. And in pursuit of the intention isn't always going to land us in the side of things of some learning. Sometimes when you pursue that pacing guide intention, Two kids learn it and everybody learns zero. Yeah. Like everybody else learns nothing. But we could have had, we exactly. could have backed off and everyone could have learned something. I completely agree. And so I hope the listeners are hearing is that it's all about nudging students along in their learning journey, right? We're all going to the end, to those standards at the end, but that doesn't mean that they're all going to get to that standard, that learning goal that day. And so I think going back to what we said before, which is like the better you know your standards or your content, and it doesn't matter what standards you use, like math content builds. And as you know that and understand that more, and as you do this more, you can better help kids along on that. And then you could take a deep breath and be like, it's okay, they're going to get it tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. And it was funny because after I did a lesson today, one of the teachers who was observing said, what are you paying attention to? Because I adjusted my lesson, my closing, my consolidation that day today because of exactly what you're talking about. What a great question. What what are you paying attention to? Like, what do you, how do you know? I said, as teachers, we've been trained to pay attention to the math. We pay attention to the questions that the students are getting wrong. We've been trained to look for errors and we're, because we're in this pursuit of the answer and we want to see the right answer. And that's what we've been told to pay attention to. But the problem is that when we're paying attention to that, we're focusing on the math. And we're not focusing on the learner, right? My answer was, I pay attention to body language. Like body language for me tells me everything I need to know, right? Mm -hmm. This group right now is stuck, but they're okay to be stuck because they're grinding away. But that group is on the verge of frustration. I need to head over there. The room as a whole is moving. Like the body language is telling me that this is hard for them, right? Now we're going to transition into something where they're going to do some individual work. So I'm check your understanding questions and I'm paying attention to the body language. And all of this is, is telling me where they are as learners mm-hmm. because their emotions are telling me everything I need to know about their progress as learners in this space. If I'm paying attention to the math, I have this saying that when we teach math, the students get in the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And when we teach students, the math gets in the way. So I always lean on the idea of paying, teaching students, but we have to be aware that when we focus on one, the other one suffers a bit. Absolutely. That balance, right, is so important. But yeah. I like this idea of paying attention and being cognizant of what you're paying attention to. Because I think when teachers are asked to let their students productively struggle or work together in groups, it's worrisome for them, right? And Teachers ask a lot, what do you do when they get, or they're getting it all wrong? Well, pay attention to what they're feeling, what they're thinking, how they're looking. Right. If they're still productive, then 
let them go for it. Right. Like, because there's a, like, this is, this is actually one of the things that is new in my work is how building thinking classrooms intersects with, with productive struggle, because we're seeing way more productive struggle in thinking classrooms. Another question is why? So often what I ask to ask the teachers is, okay, isn't productive struggle great? All we have to do is challenge our students and they'll productively struggle. And the answer is no, they no. don't. Because <laughs> when we challenge our students, a more likely thing to happen is that they give up. So what are the ingredients of productive struggle? Because it's not just pose a challenge. It certainly isn't. So what we have found, because we see so much productive struggle in a thinking classroom, especially when we're thin slicing, we're getting up to those really hard tasks or, and the kids are just grinding away and they're not giving up. And they're like, no, I don't want to hear a hint. I don't stay away. We got this. <laughs> or when we transition them into check your understanding questions and there's, we set mild, medium, spicy, and they're like, I need more spicy. And it's like they're productively struggle. So what are the ingredients? The ingredients are this. When students meet challenge on the heels of success, they are more likely to enter into productive struggle than if they meet challenge without prior success. And I don't mean prior like last week or yesterday. I mean prior like 30 seconds ago. Mm -hmm. So if you want to create productive struggle in your students, you have to give them some quick wins first. Yeah. Ask a question that they can answer that they can have success with. Ask them another one that they can have success with. Ask them another one. And now you start to you start to stretch them so that they're being challenged, but they're having success. And then they're being challenged and they're having success. And then what that's creating is that they're going to enter into a state of productive struggle. Beautiful. Because that builds their confidence, their self-efficacy, right? Like those little tiny bits. And then yeah. next thing you know, they're like, they're on top of the world and yeah. there's no more math anxiety. Productive struggle is struggle with confidence. That's really what it is. Yes. Which is a very different state than struggle with lack of confidence because that's just frustrating and painful. Right. And I think that's the experience that most of us have had in oh, yeah. math, right? And so when we can create this opportunity for kids to feel success in math, then it just changes the whole game. And so I think that is what so many teachers are experiencing in their classrooms right now is where they see students finding success and building confidence and being willing to dive in more. Okay, this has been unbelievable. I feel like I got a personal PD. I can't wait to share it with everybody. <laughs> okay, so let's just do like practical next steps for teachers with consolidation? Like, can you boil it down to like, do this tomorrow? Right. Well, first of all, do a bit of self-reflection and recognize where you are in your own journey. Because if you're, if you haven't implemented a thinking classroom yet, consolidation is not the place to start, mm -hmm. right? That is not where you're going because your mind is going to be going a hundred different places. If you haven't even tried this yet, you're going to be like, oh gosh, this group ended up together and I'm not sure if that's the best group. And oh, look, they are. And this is working well, but oops, that group is ready for the next task. Where's my next task? <laughs> yes. Like, you have a lot of routines mm -hmm. for your students to learn, but for you to learn as well. So recognize where you are in the journey. Don't jump ahead. Consolidation sits in the third toolkit. It sits there for a reason. Mm -hmm. You have to be more comfortable in this space. But let's say that's where you are. So first of all, ask yourself, if that's where you are, ask yourself, do I have a convergent task or a divergent task? If I have a divergent task, okay, the first thing I want to do is see if I can, if I can capture some different ways of thinking on the boards. So just Go into the lesson with that. Can I capture different ways of thinking and circle them with a red marker and ask them not to erase it? Because if you got that, you have the makings of a consolidation of a mm -hmm. good gallery wall. Even if you don't get the order right, it's not the end of the world. But you have now got multiple things to look at. 
If you're going to do a gallery walk, pick three boards to look at, take five minutes total. That's it. Like that's where you start. Okay. Don't go for like, oh, I'm going to build this uber amazing narrative where we're going to look at 12 different things on four different boards and we're going to go back and forth and back and forth. No. I love it. Keep it simple. Red marker around the good stuff or the stuff you want to share three, and then walk your kids through that narrative. Love it. If you have a convergent task, you're going to have, you need to have a sequence of tasks that get progressively harder. However far you get through on that list, you're not everybody only like, as long as some groups got to, let's say question 11 on that list, then a question exactly like question 11 is the ceiling for your three tasks. Something that's very similar to the first task is your floor and something from the middle is is your middle. And now you're just going to scramble the order of that and ask the students to put it back in order. As they're standing gathered at a whiteboard and you're going to scribe. It's not that hard. It turns out that that makes consolidation way easier. So don't overthink it, but if you're ready, get there because that's where you start to see a lot of those light bulb moments go off in students being able to formalize their thinking that they've been working out at the boards. So I always say never skip the debrief. You gave a pass. You said it's okay if you don't. I agree. It's okay if you don't. Get the routines worked out first. That's the most no, important. No, no, no. I think you should always do something, mm-hmm. tie it off, but don't expect to hit a home run on their first try. And even once you start hitting home runs, it won't be every day, right? (laughs) Absolutely. But when you do, you're going to feel like the best teacher on the planet. Yes, exactly. And then it's actually like what you were talking about with kids of like feeling that immediate success and then you're ready for the next challenge. Like let yourself go through that process as you're building this thinking classroom of like feel the success before you level up. But when you get there, at every step, take a moment and reflect on how great you're doing. And the opportunity that you are giving your students to think in math is such a gift. Peter, your work is such a gift to the math community. I speak for all the teachers that are listening, that we are so grateful that math is talking about sense-making and thinking, and you've given us this toolkit. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, that was your dose of Honest Math Chat for today, friend. Thanks so much for listening. It would mean so much to me if you subscribed, shared this podcast with your friend, or leave a comment. If you have not downloaded my free guide that I made in response to the questions you have all about engaging your students in math discussions, go grab it, monamath.com slash discussions. And if you have other questions that I haven't answered, shoot me a DM on Instagram at hellomonamath. I can't wait to chat more with you next week. Remember, we're here every Monday. I'm always listening on my way to work. When do you listen? See you soon, friend.